Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, we'll present just a few minutes from a news conference held on Wednesday by Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther and Columbus Health Commissioner Dr. Mashika Roberts during which the mayor issued a mask order for all people vaccinated or not when in indoor public places in Columbus. That includes restaurants and grocery stores. There's a blood shortage in central Ohio. I'll talk with someone from the Versity Blood Center of Ohio about that. Then in about 15 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Angela Ann presents a closer look at Bishop Sycamore. That's the mysterious high school in Columbus that has a football team that played on ESPN and lost badly to a highly ranked Florida team. Other segments from 10 TV look at redistricting and abortion laws. In the second half hour, I'll talk with the head of the National Education Association about the challenges of the current school year, and I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. September is Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month. We'll talk about suicide. First up on Columbus Perspective, on Wednesday, Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther held a news conference, talked about the coronavirus, We're presenting just about four minutes of comments that the mayor had to say. Here's Mayor Andrew Ginther. We've made extraordinary advances toward protecting people against this virus, and the vaccine is chief among them. Through collaboration and scientific discovery, we have gained powerful new tools and knowledge that are saving lives and preventing or dramatically reducing the likelihood of new or serious infections. Numerous locations across the community are standing by to administer the vaccine to those who haven't received one or completed the series that they have started. It remains our best defense, and I'm asking those who haven't been vaccinated to do so today. Visit the Columbus Public Health website for information on where to get yours. Sadly, however, Far too many remain unvaccinated, both here in Columbus and throughout the nation. Without a sufficiently high vaccination rate to stop the virus in its tracks, it continues to linger, evolve, and assume more contagious and potentially more dangerous variations. New cases are on the rise. Hospitalizations are on the rise, and the strain on our medical and public health professionals has reached a breaking point. The beginning of the pandemic, we were very concerned that we did not have enough beds in hospitals to admit every patient. Now, our challenge is not having enough hospital and health care workers to keep up with the influx of new patients. 19 months, 19 months on the front lines of a crippling public health crisis is more than most of us could ever bear. And for some, they have understandably decided to move on. Burnout has taken its toll, and we don't have the number of frontline health care workers needed to keep up with the growing demand for their talents and expertise. We have to do more. We need to get vaccinated, and we need to wear our masks. That's how we show support for our health care professionals and public health workers. We also need to do more as a city. 
and I'm announcing my plans to issue an executive order requiring all individuals, regardless of vaccination status, to wear face masks in indoor public spaces. This isn't about shutting down and giving up. All of us have three goals that we all share in common. Keeping our schools open, keeping our economy open, and making sure that our health care workers are not overwhelmed so they can do what they do best, help to treat and take care of our neighbors. Regardless of your political persuasion, your beliefs in the vaccine, all of us share the same three principles. We will release additional details on the executive order in the coming days, and I will be working with Columbus City Council to codify this order in the form of an ordinance when they return next week. But nothing about it will prove surprising or unfamiliar. We've done this before. Many of the same caveats and exemptions that have previously come to know will continue to apply. Like I said, Columbus is open for business. Our schools are open. Our healthcare professionals are at their breaking point. And we need to step up to do more for our neighbors in crisis. Mayor Andrew Ginther from Wednesday. During that news conference, Columbus Health Commissioner Dr. Mashika Roberts also spoke. Here are some of her comments. This runs just about two and a half minutes. After almost 19 months of our fight against COVID-19, we once again find ourselves at a critical moment in this pandemic due to the Delta variant. This extremely contagious virus is spreading like wildfire here in our community and across our state, as well as our country. Despite our very best efforts since the beginning of this crisis, the situation is worsening. Our case numbers are up and they have been increasing since July. Just last week alone, there were 2,500 cases in our community a 37% increase over the previous week. Our positivity rate is up and is now at 9.6%. It's been increasing since July when it was right under 2%. And it's almost as close as it was to November of 2020 before we had a vaccine. Our case rate is also increasing. We are now seeing a 14-day aggregate case rate right here in Franklin County of 408 cases per 100,000, which is also similar to the rate we had last November. Now, even though that rate is high, there are counties in Ohio that have rates higher than that. So let that sink in for a second. Vaccines are safe. They're effective, and they can be found in almost any retail pharmacy in any health department here in our community. Currently, 53% of Franklin County residents are fully vaccinated. But if you just look at Columbus residents alone, only 46% of Columbus residents are fully vaccinated. We need more people to roll up their sleeves and get this vaccine, not only for themselves, but for our community. Last week, 26.5%, almost a quarter of our new cases were under the age of 18. If we compare that to a year ago, 
it was 4.4%. And then if we look at just those kids who are not eligible for the vaccine yet, so those who are 11 and younger, they represent 15.5% of our newly reported cases. A year ago, they represented less than 2% of our new cases. Columbus Health Commissioner, Dr. Mashika Roberts. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. And joining me on the phone is Dr. Dan Waxman. He is the Vice President and Senior Medical Director of the Versity Blood Center of Ohio. How are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. What is uh, the Versity Blood Center of Ohio? So Versity of blood, blood Center of Ohio is the provider of blood and blood products to The Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. And uh, we also run blood centers in Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and up there in Michigan. So patients who are, uh, you know, who have trauma, cancer, those receiving organ transplants at Ohio State Hospitals are, are using blood collected by Versity. And on any given day, they never know from one day to the next how much they're going to need, right? Well, actually, given, you know, how many years that the medical center has been running, they, they have a pretty good idea of, of what they need on any given day. Um, now, there's always traumatic injuries, which can increase blood usage dramatically just for one patient, um, or if there are a number of uh, transplants going on. Um, but we, we, we know that we have to provide a certain amount of baseline product to them each and every day, and that's year-round. So whether there's, you know, things going on uh, with weather or what we've been facing for over the last year, the pandemic, um, we have to make sure that we provide products for patients uh, at the hospital. And I know there is a blood shortage going on, and that's easy to believe because I just can't imagine how disruptive this pandemic has been when it comes to collecting blood. Absolutely. You know, prior to the pandemic, 20 to 30 percent of our blood donations were collected in, in high schools and universities. And for quite some times, we did not have any access to high schools and universities because either they were closed or they were holding uh, classes virtually. And so now that schools are starting to open back up, um, we're, we're getting access to those donors. And those are, are you know, our youngest donors. I mean, in, in Ohio, with your parents' permission, you can donate as young as 16 years old. 17 and above, you're, you're, you're free to donate. And these are vital, vital donors, first and foremost, because it's, it's the first time they're really being a blood donor and doing this life-saving uh, volunteer act. And it's also, you know, blood is a renewable resource. You can donate every eight weeks. And so high schools and universities are a a crucial part of our our donor base. But also, during the pandemic, you know, we have not had access uh, to certain businesses. 
um, or, you know, places of worship. Um, you know, we hold blood drives on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, so it, it, it's just, it's been a struggle. Um, you know, Versity's networks of blood centers, you know, we've, we've been down as much as 40% year over year in our mobile collections. Um, and that, that is hard to make up. So we really um, are counting on uh, uh, increasing our, our donors, donor base, and donations uh, in, the, in the Columbus area. Talking with Dr. Dan Waxman from the Versity Blood Center of Ohio. Well, you've got an event coming up on Wednesday, uh, a blood drive on Wednesday, that would be a great one for folks to get in on. Yeah, this, this is going to be a great one. It's also a, it's a, it's a, a great location. So Wednesday the 15th from 9.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., uh, we're going to do it in the parking lot outside of the, the Zoo's African Event Center. And donors who come to donate uh, will get a free ticket to Zumbezi Bay. Um, I'm busy Bay, so this, you know, is, is Columbus's largest Halloween attraction. So uh, this, this will, um, you know, be a, a great event. We uh, we still have 35 uh, blood donation appointments uh, available, so you can you can sign up and get an appointment, and then you can come and donate. You get a ticket, um, and um, it's just it's it's a, it's a great event, but also it's something that you, when you do this, you're going to absolutely save lives. Uh, blood and blood donations save people's lives. And, you know, you could give me literally billions of dollars, smartest scientists, fabulous laboratories, and we cannot invent in a lab what someone can take just an hour out of their day, 15 minutes in the donor chair. Uh, nothing can replace uh, a human blood donation. And so we need donors each and every day. And so next Wednesday, 9.30 to 5.30, uh, here's a chance to come out and, and, uh, and, and help someone out. Are there any sort of restrictions? Uh, I'm thinking, uh, you know, diabetics, people with high blood pressure, people that have had cancer, anything like that. Well, we actually can take people if you if you have diabetes and you you take um, insulin even or or oral uh, uh, medications. If it controls your blood sugar, you can be a donor. People who take blood pressure medications, I take several. Controls your blood pressure, you can be a donor. If you've had cancer. And if it's been more than a year and you're, you're cancer-free, as long as it's not either a leukemia or a lymphoma, um, you can be a blood donor. So there are people who've had cancer, they've been treated, they, they do not have a recurrence, it's over a year, they can be a blood donor again. Even some people who had childhood leukemia, if they had a childhood leukemia, now are a young adult or an older adult, they're able to donate. So, there, you know, it used to be that the people thought, well, if you have any type of medical condition, you're not able to be a donor. Well, you actually can. Um, and blood donation, it, it, again, it takes one hour. Uh, you donate 500 milliliters, which is the equivalent of a, a sports bottle. And we have anywhere between, you know, 10 to 12 of these units in our body circulating around. And so you can spare one. Um, and again, it, it's, a, it's a volunteer act that's absolutely life-saving. Once again, uh, this particular blood uh, drive that we're talking about is Wednesday. Uh, it's going to be from 9.30 a.m. to 5.30 at the zoo, at the zoo's Africa Event Center. Anybody that gives blood will get a free ticket to Zambezi Bay, which is uh, the Halloween attraction at Zumbezi Bay. Do folks uh, register for this online, doctor, or how do they do it? Yeah, so they can uh, go online, uh, schedule an appointment. You can either call 800 800- Four eight five six five nine four, or if you just go online, you go 
to versity.org uh, forward slash Ohio. And that way um, uh, you can uh, sign up. You get a ticket to that, uh, the, uh, the Halloween attraction, and that'll be something fun to go to. And, and uh, But, again, just either call us or go online. And then, if, again, if you can't um, make this day and time to, to donate, please go to our website and find another uh, mobile drive uh, to go to. Um, we have them all around Columbus. We're getting ready to have a, uh, a fixed donor site in the Columbus area. Um, and it's that way, if, if you just can't make next Wednesday, pick another day. It's a great thing to do um, now that we're, you know, getting through the, the summer months. People will be, you know, more likely to, to be available to donate. And we really appreciate it. And, and honestly, the, the patients in the hospitals, it means everything to them. Outstanding. Again, Dr. Dan Waxman, Vice President, Senior Medical Director of the Versity Blood Center of Ohio. Thanks so much for the information. Uh, my pleasure, and I appreciate you having me on and uh, look forward to seeing the donors at our event. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Angela Ann from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Governor Mike DeWine is calling for an investigation into troubled school Bishop Sycamore. Well, like I think every other Ohioan who heard the news, uh, or anybody, I was not watching it, but anybody who saw it on ESPN, what in the world's going on? Uh, and so what I hope comes out of the investigation is the truth. The governor says there are questions about the sports team and the institution as a whole. Thank you for joining us for Face the State. I'm Angela Ann. Tracy is off. Ten Investigates has learned a company that Bishop Sycamore claimed would help make it one of the best academic institutions in the country now says it never had a relationship with them. And as Chief Investigative Reporter Bennett Haverly explains, another group says it stopped providing online courses because of non-payment. This was never about anything financial for us. Uh, we, we, we spent far more money, uh, we spent a lot of money and never received anything in, in return because it wasn't about the money, it was, it was literally about helping these young men. During an interview with 10 Investigates, Bishop Sycamore founder Andre Peterson stated his school is legitimate, but a mostly online high school with no building means Go. the football team doesn't have a home field, so workouts happen in parking lots and wherever the team could rent space. Its website appeared to be more focused on football than academics. Somebody says Bishop Sycamore is not legitimate, or is not a legitimate football program, not a legitimate school. You would say what? That they're wrong. Why so? Because uh, I believe what we, we, we've done what we needed to do as far as making sure that these young men are educated. But there are still questions about that, too. In these documents filed last year with the Ohio Department of Education, Bishop Sycamore claimed they were an innovative, academically accredited school, partnering with Advancing Sciences Worldwide and ISE, Innovation Science Education, a partnership that they claimed would make them one of the best academic institutions in the country. But in an email to 10 Investigates, the president of ASW said, quote, We never had any partnership with a school called Bishop Sycamore, and we never provided them any educational materials. The email went on to explain the limited partnership it had with ISE was terminated last spring. What program did you guys lean on to, to use the online curricula? 
Uh, last year we used Graduation Alliance. Graduation Alliance told 10 Investigates it did provide Bishop Sycamore with online curriculum for five months last school year. A spokesman said as many as 19 students were enrolled, but it dropped to five when the online program was canceled for non-payment. Four students stuck with the program. Hey, Andre, this is Bennett Haberly over at 10 TV. I called Peterson back Thursday seeking answers and left him a message. Is it a moneymaker for you guys? <laughs> no, it's, it's not a moneymaker at all. Like I said, I, I haven't received a check from Bishop Sycamore. Money troubles have been in the background. Peterson confirmed that Bishop Sycamore emerged out of the ashes of Christians of Faith Academy. Court records show the now former coach Roy Johnson was accused of racking up $110,000 in unpaid hotel fees for housing players at this Baymont Inn in Delaware, Ohio. In 2019, court records show the group was evicted from the Griff apartment complex. I think that the, for us, the challenge is to make sure this doesn't happen again. State Representative Mary Lightbody said she was discouraged by what she's read and heard about Bishop Sycamore. The educator and lawmaker says an administrative code fix may be necessary to provide more oversight on certain private schools. But she wants to see what the Ohio Department of Education investigation reveals. Given that they don't seem to have been being educated, that there were no compulsory attendance records kept, there were no teachers who were on staff. I don't see how it can be found to be a, in a, a proper school. In Columbus, Bennett Haverly, 10 Investigates. So where do the students and the school go from here? We want to put this in the spotlight. I spoke one-on-one -on -one with Bennett to learn more about his reporting and what comes next. He brought up something really interesting is that there is no oversight a lot of people were surprised, Bennett, to find out that there is this type of school even out there where kids aren't learning, there's no checks and balances. Are there, how many other schools are similar to Bishop Sycamore in this kind of structure? Well, it's, it's hard to say how many are, are doing exactly what Bishop Sycamore is doing, but in terms of non-chartered, non-tax board schools, there's about 400 in the state of Ohio, according to the latest figures that we got from the Ohio Department of education. Now, how many of those are actually doing things by the book? We don't know yet. We'd have to go through it with a fine tooth comb and sort of look at all of that. And I think that's what ODE is about to do with uh, Bishop Sycamore. They're going to investigate what exactly, you know, they reported on paper, what actually matches up with reality. And where that money went, because that could potentially, do you foresee criminal charges down the pike? I think it's too early to say anything in that regard. I mean, you know, in our interview with Andre Peterson, who described himself as the founder of this school, he said that the school is financed by private donations, he and his wife, that in his words, it's not a moneymaker. In his contention, it's a legitimate school, but there are still breadcrumbs along the way that sort of raise questions about that. We just had contact with a academic partner or supposed academic partner who said, they never had a partnership with the school and what brief relationship they had with a similar sister foundation was terminated. Another online provider said that they did provide academic support for the school last year for five months, but that they stopped doing that because they stopped getting paid. We found court records that show that they had $110,000 in unpaid hotel fees back when they were another school, Christian Christians of Faith Academy, there were additional unpaid debts, evictions, and now we hear a report from this past weekend that there were bounced checks uh, from the hotel related to this game. So uh, the, the money issue seems to be central to the narrative here.
Victoria Dasko, fantastic reporting, Bennett. Great digging into the background. I'm sure this is not the end that we're going to hear about Bishop Sycamore. Probably not. You're right. All right. Thanks, Bennett. And if you have something that you would like Bennett to investigate, reach out. Use this email, 10investigates at 10tv.com. Well, it looks like you will have to wait longer to learn who your U.S. congressman will be for the next 10 years. The commission in charge of redrawing these districts missed its deadline. Why? Well, Ohio lawmakers can't agree on who holds the pen. As you know, where you live determines who represents you. Senate Democrats submitted the first map of this process. The Columbus area gains several more districts in this proposal. But several other maps are in the works, and some Republicans say they are not on board. This is a starting point, and the members of the Senate Democratic Caucus urge the members of the commission and the public to provide feedback and suggestions. There's already been some analysis. <laughs> uh, apparently, there are some constitutional violations in this map, and my staff will get with um, uh, uh, Senator Sykes and talk about that. So the next deadline to submit these maps is September 15th. That is next Wednesday. Ohio lawmakers say they hope to have a single map created by a bipartisan caucus for the commission to approve. Now, to be clear, the commission itself does not create the maps, but it could vote on changes to whichever map is selected. So why is this redistricting process so difficult and so controversial? OSU political professor Herb Asher says it comes down to gerrymandering. The way you gerrymander, whether, you know, both parties would do this if they had the power to, the way you gerrymander is you either pack or you crack. And pack means you're going to concentrate as many of your opponent's voters into a district as possible. So instead of winning it by 53, 55, 56 percent, they win it by 80 percent. You don't need 80 percent to win a district. And so you're winning that district and wasting so many votes in doing that. Cracking is when you take an area and you break it up into smaller pieces. Well, however this shakes out, this could have major implications for lawmakers. Consider District 15. It's in southern and central Ohio. That is the district previously held by former U.S. Congressman Steve Stivers. There is a special election in November for his seat. Republican Mike Carey is running against Democrat and current state rep Allison Russo. But the winner of that race will have to run again next year based on the brand new boundary lines. Well, just ahead on Face the State, we are dedicated to answering your online questions, such as claims on social media about dogs left overseas in Afghanistan. Our Verify team gets the answer. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Angela Ann, courtesy of 10TV. America's longest war is over, but the crisis in Afghanistan remains, and thousands of lives are in limbo. That includes refugees from Afghanistan looking for a place to stay and live. Many who have resettled in Ohio are asking for privacy, given the security risks of their families still overseas. A central Ohio resettlement group called CRIS confirms two people are now living here, and as of last week, three other families were on the way. 
The director of the Community Refugee and Immigration Services says families can fall under two types of immigration statuses, refugee status or humanitarian parole. The difference? Well, the latter is temporary and must be renewed every two years. There's some gaps in the way refugees are treated versus what, how this group may be treated. And we're hopeful that there'll be a legislative fix to make sure we can provide them services to find employment, uh, make sure they have health care coverage. Um, also, they're going to need a lot of legal assistance. Angie Plummer with Chris says the group also needs landlords who are willing to help the new refugees resettle. Well, people on social media are claiming U.S. military service dogs were left behind in cages at the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. Ariane Detail with our National Verify team looked into it. This image of dogs in cages has gone viral on social media, with claims military service dogs were left behind in Afghanistan when the U.S. military evacuated from the country. Since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan, there have been a number of misleading images shared on social media, claiming to show current events from the country. So let's verify. Does this photo show U.S. military service dogs left behind in Afghanistan? Our sources are John Kirby, Pentagon Press Secretary, Eric Pahone, spokesperson for the Department of Defense, and the Centers for Disease Control and prevention. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby tweeted, the U.S. military did not leave any dogs in cages at the international airport in Kabul, including the reported military working dogs. He says the photos online show animals under the care of the Kabul Small Animal Rescue, a nonprofit helping evacuate animals from Afghanistan. The DOD confirmed in a statement to verify that the dogs in the photo are not U.S. military service dogs. Rather, they were the responsibility of private contracting companies. He says no U.S. military service dogs were left in the care of KSAR. According to KSAR, they weren't able to secure transport for the animals in their care because of a new CDC policy. The CDC says they issued a temporary suspension for dogs imported from high-risk countries for dog rabies, like Afghanistan. But in a statement to verify, they confirmed the CDC worked closely with the DOD and DOS to issue permits for the evacuation of all government-owned working dogs per the agency's requests. The dogs under KSAR's care are not considered government-owned working dogs. So we can verify, no. This photo does not show U.S. military service dogs left behind in Afghanistan. With your Verify, I'm Ariane Day-Till. Ariane, thank you. Now, before you click share, we want to help you verify. Reach out to us with any questionable posts or content online. You can send an email to verify at 10tv.com. Well, Ohio lawmakers and military leaders came together to honor veterans and their families for their service. Now, this took place after the final days of the war in Afghanistan. Those who spoke wanted to send a message that help is available for anything. Even the toughest warriors sometimes need to take a knee and get a drink of water. And that applies mentally, too. Sometimes the emotional, the mental burden becomes too heavy, and we have to take a knee and ask for help. And there's no appropriate or inappropriate way to feel. Our feelings are real. And they are ours. The Ohio Department of Mental Health is working directly now with the National Guard and Veteran Services to connect with local veterans. Ohio, by the way, is home to the sixth largest population of U.S. veterans from World War II to the present. Well, COVID-19 cases in Ohio are once again climbing, and doctors fear most what that means for hospitals. And the caseload now is the highest since January. Health experts are concerned because hospitalizations often lag behind those case numbers. 
which could mean hospital beds will fill up quickly in the coming weeks. So what are state leaders doing about this? Well, Governor Mike DeWine points to the COVID-19 vaccine, as he has from the start. That means those individuals are very, very unlikely, even if they get the COVID, uh, to end up in a hospital and very unlikely to, to die. So we made a conscious decision to protect the most vulnerable individuals, and we did that very, very early on. So that is, that is the good news. Uh, the bad news is that this Delta variant is very contagious. It's more contagious than what we were dealing with a year ago. Um, we are also told by experts that in many cases the viral load that is transmitted and ends up with the, the, the person, the victim, uh, is, is significantly higher. And you will remember that Governor DeWine is unable to issue health orders after the state legislature stripped that power from the State Department of Health. 10 TV's Olivia Eugenio tells us more about the drug ivermectin and why doctors say it is not a safe treatment for COVID. Ohio Health says they've had patients ask about ivermectin, but they're not recommending it as a treatment for COVID-19. Ivermectin is an antiparasitic medication. Dr. Joseph Gustaldo is a doctor at Ohio Health. He says he has prescribed ivermectin before, but only for individuals dealing with parasite infections, typically in a single dose that's based off a person's body weight. There is no proven benefit of the use of ivermectin for COVID-19 treatment or prevention. Um, in fact, uh, ivermectin given on a daily basis um, is not necessarily a benign thing. He says it can have negative effects such as seizure, mental status change, or going comatose. It is being used for both prevention and treatment. It is not FDA approved that way. Um, in fact, uh, there is really no science to support that ivermectin has a role for, pre for treatment and prevention. Ivermectin is mostly used for animals. The way we use it most frequently would be in, incorporated into certain heartworm preventions um, for, uh, for both uh, dogs and cats. Dr. Daniel Bishop from My Vet Animal Hospital says his practice doesn't use it too much. He says they won't give the drug to just anyone. No one in our practice would be able to walk in off the street and just request ivermectin and be able to walk out of here with it. The state of Ohio Board of Pharmacy has also come out against the use of ivermectin to prevent or treat COVID. In Columbus, Olivia Eugenio, 10TV News. We also reached out to the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. The hospital says it has had some people ask about the medication, but their policy does not recommend ivermectin to patients with COVID-19. Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown says he is confident Congress will approve that massive infrastructure bill this fall. The Democrat spoke in Columbus at the Central Ohio Transit Authority, or CODA. He says the bill isn't just about roads and bridges. It will also help transit systems add low-emission vehicles and train workers. Because I believe fundamentally transit is about the dignity of work. It creates jobs. It connects people with jobs. This is going to open a new chapter in transit infrastructure in our great city. Senator Brown's Republican counterpart, Senator Rob Portman, was a primary negotiator on this bill. So the House will vote next, but it may face an uphill battle. Opponents argue there are too many parts of the bill that are not related to infrastructure. Well, the abortion fight in the United States intensified. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to block a law in Texas that bans abortions after six weeks into pregnancy. The high court voted five to four, making this the most restrictive abortion legislation in the country. 
The Texas law, SB 8, essentially bans abortions for women as early as six weeks into pregnancy, which is before many women realize they're pregnant. It also allows any private citizen to sue someone who helps a woman get an abortion. Many people are asking if this could happen in another state like Ohio. Of course we're worried that other states uh, where, there is, uh, where there is a movement and an effort to prevent women from having access to health care will copycat uh, these steps by the Texas uh, that happened in Texas. Uh, now, that is one of the reasons why the president thinks it's so urgent and why he has asked his team to act as quickly as possible to see what our options are. Supporters say the law protects the right to life. And we should note the court's decision does not prevent justices from considering this case again in the future. Now, earlier this summer, Ohio lawmakers joined the Ohio Attorney General in a national legal effort to overturn Roe v. Wade. The Ohio Capitol Journal reports a bill that would ban abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned is awaiting review in the Ohio legislature. A Pew Research report found 48% of Ohioans approve of abortion in most cases. Well, we do want to thank you for joining us here on Face the State. Tracy will be back next week, and we'll see you then. Everyone stay safe and be well. That's again Angela Ann, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Becky Pringle. She's the president of the National Education Association. How are you? I am good, Dave. How are you? I'm good. How is the state of education these days? We're, we're trying to get back to normal, but we're not there yet. <laughs> uh, we are not there yet, and I'm not sure. I don't think anyone knows what normal is anymore. But I will tell you that educators all over this country, just every year when we go back to school, they are, are excited and encouraged and hopeful to welcome all of their students back uh, at the start of this year to in-person learning and engaging and working together. What is the recommendation that the National Education Association has when it comes to some of these mandates with masks and vaccines? So, Dave, I taught science for over 30 years. And I've been saying this throughout the pandemic, follow the science, listen to the infectious disease experts, and then work together, educators, communities, parents together to make sure our students stay safe. We already know what the science tells us, that the best way to keep our students safe is to make sure that all of the people who have, who can be vaccinated are vaccinated. That's the first thing. The second thing is we know that masks save lives. So they need to be wearing masks. And the third thing is that we need to make sure that we have regular testing in schools to be able to ensure that if someone does get sick, we are isolating them and we're not spreading that. Because we want to not only go back to in-person learning, they we want to stay in-person learning. We know that that is the best way for students and educators to come together to ensure they have a quality education. It's obviously uh, raised a lot of issues at school board meetings, especially. You've got some parents that are clashing with boards that want mask mandates, uh, and it's just become a, a big political deal. That's, exa- that's exactly right, and there is really no excuse for politicizing our students' safety and health. What we're starting to see now, Dave, is the majority of parents who agree with us 
that we need to do everything we can to keep our students safe are lifting up their voices, and that's what we're asking them to do. We're asking them to join us in ensuring that every single school puts in place those mitigation strategies that, that the CDC recommends that we know work so that our students and educators will stay safe. Talking with Becky Pringle, president of the National Education Association. Are you expecting in the next month or two for the majority of schools to go back to a virtual environment for a time, or what, what are you expecting? Dave, we, we hope not. What we're asking for is three things. That as we go back to school this year, that we put in place things that worked last year. You know, we had schools that were, that were conducting in-person learning all year long. And the, the way they were able to do it safely is that they had those mitigation strategies in place. At the start of the year, they had masking, social distancing, cleaning, uh, making sure that the ventilation systems were up to date, all of that. And they did three other things. They were collaborating, uh, they were communicating, and they were consistently employing all of those mitigation strategies. So they were doing all of that. And because of that, they were actually able to keep their students uh, in person learning throughout the year. So we're asking everyone to start this school year off year with all of that evidence that we gathered last year. We know how to keep our students safe. If we do that thing, we will actually be able to keep our students in person learning. There's no question that the Delta variant has thrown us a curveball. More students are getting sick. More students are getting really sick. More, more, more children are in children's hospitals. We know that's happening. So we must take all of those measures. There is no excuse for us not making sure that our students stay safe. And Becky, where can folks uh, find out more information about where your organization stands on all this? They can go to nea.org and to get any information they, they need on where our organization stands. But I would also send them to NEA dot org slash educating through crisis because that all, that gives all kinds of material for our parents and for community members for educators so that they not only are working to keep our students safe but they're learning strategies to address their social emotional and academic needs becky pringle president national education association thank you for your time today thank you so much dave This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone is Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Hey, Dwayne, what's going? What's going on? How you doing? I'm doing good, Dave. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. You uh, last time we talked to you last month, you were talking about nearly all of your workers uh, are vaccinated. Yeah. So we were down to of 110 people. We had 104. I actually did meet with the uh, uh, remaining six, just because we were debating whether to mandate it. I would not do that without discussing things with them. Uh, one of them then decided to get vaccinated as long as I took her because she was scared. Um, uh, the other ones, we're, we're testing them weekly to make sure that they're safe. They all put together plans, so uh, our, our, our rate is so high, we're not going to mandate. I, quite honestly, Dave, one of the things I, I took away from that conversation is if it, we did mandate, we risk losing them. And one of them had been with us for 15 years, 
And, you know, hopefully this is not an enduring thing. So six months from now, if we're out of this, it'd be like I lost somebody who I worked with for 15 years. Uh, but you got to balance that with keeping people safe and what, what is responsible. And um, so we have good plans that are in place to keep everybody safe and, and still be able to go about our business. So I'm very happy about the outcome. And, and they were so appreciative of having the open conversations. I think too often we all, often make decisions that affect other people without having them included in the process. Now, that's not always possible, but when it is possible, uh, you, you, you should listen to people and have respectful conversations. It, it's, it's when you don't do those things that I think uh, really creates uh, um, environments where it's us versus them. You're a nonprofit agency uh, involved in counseling and therapy and a pretty big one, too. Uh, yeah, so we have uh, over 50 licensed uh, uh, counselors and therapists who work with kids and families. Um, we also have two after-school centers that uh, have, offer education and prevention programming. Uh, we serve about 6,000 kids a year. You know, with, with everything that's been going on, schools open, schools closed, you know, all this stuff has been challenging for all the people that we serve who have fewer resources than most. We, we, we um, are, are typically in high-risk communities. It, it, it's, a, uh, it's been a challenge. Um, um, and our referrals are have gone up. It's um, uh, many people are out there looking for uh, assistance and trying to, you know, deal with everything that all of us are dealing with on a regular basis daily. Living in a more challenging world and also a more violent world these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is uh, when, when you look at all of this and, and what it's doing. Um, I, I think really from a community standpoint, things have changed. Um, and and uh, people get desperate. There, there's people with anxiety and depression that uh, some of these things are going, aren't going treated. And um, that can lead to many, many other problems. And one of those uh, issues is what we're going to talk about. September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And uh, just the other day, I think it was on Tuesday, in Avon Lake, which is west of Cleveland, 50-year-old man, police say the 50-year-old man shot and killed his 45-year-old wife, his two kids ages 9 and 6, and one of the two family dogs, and then himself. And uh, it's just, you know, in a small town like that, too, it's just uh, a, a lot of tragedy and a lot of grief in the schools and the, in the community. Yeah, and, and let's be clear about this. When people really start to contemplate suicide, when they really start seeing this as a viable option, it's really where they're stuck at at that place and time. Um, and they do see it as a, a viable option. It, it, it's not as if uh, um, they're delusional or they've actually weighed the pros and cons, um, typically. And we, we had a young man um, who actually spoke at our State of the Child luncheon, and he talked about um, his suicide ideation, which then advanced to um, him putting together a plan. Uh, he was also in a family that, uh, when he first brought it up to his parents, um, the father told him that you're an embarrassment, and uh, which didn't help. I mean, these aren't. That's not a very comforting uh, a comment to make to somebody. But I think the father was struggling with. Uh, I have a son now who is suicidal, you know, and the father saw that as weak um, and threw that at the kid, so he really was at his lowest place. Fortunately, uh, a counselor at school hooked him up with our services, and um, he openly talks about this now because uh, of his struggle and um, his success in working through that, and um, he's actually now in college and uh, wants to be a therapist. 
Talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Before being CEO, he was the clinical director there, and he is a licensed therapist. When there's a murder-suicide like in Avon Lake, what is the, the reasoning behind taking the rest of your family with you when that happens? Yeah, that's. I think that that I don't even know that I can answer that. I think uh, it, it um, the end suffering for everybody to take them. Each person is going to have their own view around that, um, or their own uh, uh, rationale, if you will, around that. That that's just hard. And uh, you know what's even harder is all the other people who are um, left behind. Um, we are, one of our programs, Children of Murdered Parents and Siblings, is not just for that. It, it's for losing friends and close people. Um, and, and when you lose them to suicide, that's just a hard one. And, and it's just like losing someone to violence. It's just very, very hard. Um, you you want to do as much prevention as possible, uh, but that's not always possible because some of the people who end up completing these kind of suicide uh, uh, plans um, don't talk to people. So, I mean, the first thing you have to do is ask. If you see somebody who is feeling down, it's almost like one of these taboo things that people don't want to bring up. Um, but you have to. You have to ask. And uh, suicide ideation has steps, and it advances. We actually have uh, plans um, for people who are uh, depressed or, or uh, we think is, is you know at risk for suicide so that when they start to move in through the process, like it, they're not just thinking about it now, they're actually now planning how to do it, and now the next step is actually having the materials to do that or uh, uh, the equipment to do it because the plan is advancing. So now, so these are all stages of where you're at in the process. Um, it's hard to recognize those all the times, uh, but what we need to do always is ask. If you see somebody struggling, ask. It, have you thought about hurting yourself? You don't even have to say killing yourself. You can say, have you thought about hurting yourself? Um, typically, people will be honest about that. I think I've read, too, that in some cases, even though there may be a pattern of somebody frequently contemplating suicide, they may at times be more fleeting thoughts. But if they happen to carry it out during one of those fleeting thoughts, then... You know, I mean, that's the unfortunate thing about it, that maybe maybe an hour later they wouldn't have felt that way. Right. And, you know, some things with that is it's it's not when somebody is totally depressed. It's not really when they're at risk, in a sense, because they're really too low to even carry it out. It's when they're on their way down or coming on their way out that they then have the energy to um, complete these things. So, you know, there's a big window there of a high-risk area, but it really does start by asking. You have to make sure, and if they say yes, you know, they're thinking of hurting themselves, you don't even have to use the word suicide, the next thing you do is have to do a safety plan. So how can I keep you safe? How can I help? And then you you have to uh, um, um, be, there, be there for them. You need to be there for them. Let them know that there is somebody there uh, that, that they can reach out to. Um, you know, so there's a whole process that we need to do to uh, try to recognize these things. Um, but sometimes uh, people just don't even recognize that. So when you see a change in behavior, whether it's, and it really can be a lot of the uh, um, variables that we see when we see depression, there's a change in behavior, a loss of appetite, a, a lack of sleep or too much sleep, um, uh, no longer interested in activities, isolation. All these are warning signs that something is going on and it starts by asking the question, what's happening? I typically think 
start with, have you thought about, are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? I mean, I think that's where you start. And then if they say, well, yes, I say, well, it, how far has that advanced? Is it, I mean, because it could just be cutting behavior. Is it, uh, which isn't good either, um, uh, have you thought about suicide? Yes. Um, have you made a plan? If they say yes, do you have whatever plan that is, the ability to carry it out? No. Okay, well, you see, so now we know where we're at, um, and, and we can intervene. But the more that you end up advancing down that route, um, uh, the more and, – and let's – everyone should know you all don't have to be therapists to intervene. We all know there are helplines. You know, we see these things all the time. Everybody can Google these things and see um, that there are suicide prevention places. There are crisis centers. There, you do not have to be the expert. Um, this is one of those things, too, that a friend will say, well, but I told you in confidence. Well, you have to share with them, yeah, well, I care about you enough that if you're in, in many professions, this is one of the areas where confidentiality uh, is off the table. We have no choice but to intervene, and we let them know that at intake. If that happens, um, we're going to do whatever we can to keep you safe. I think it should be the same thing if anybody else tells you this. You know, confidentiality needs to go out the door. Um, your first priority is to help keep them safe. Talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. In the event, uh, like the Avon Lake situation with the murder-suicide, and they were very young kids, ages 9 and 6, both went to the same elementary school. There's grief counselors at the school. And I remember asking you once about whether kids do turn to grief counselors at schools in these situations. And you said, yes, they do, and they're very helpful. Yeah, many schools have. Actually, even in the Columbus area, you have a lot of uh, uh, different social agencies that will join together um, to reach out to schools that are so, to, to offer counseling to any of the students that need that. Uh, it's one of the times where there's an awful lot of cooperation um, and, and just a collective impact from everybody uh, in the social service arena to say that, you know, we all want this to, to address these types of things in a healthy way. Um, we will work with each other. We will collaborate. We'll do what we can um, to make sure we meet the needs of the people who are surrounded uh, around events like that. It seems like in a situation like that, uh, I, maybe depending on the age too, though, that kind of a group session where all the kids can kind of talk about whatever they know about it and, you know, without spooking them too much, uh, maybe that could be helpful. Yeah, you know, in our programs, uh, some of them particularly are our trauma programs, which this certainly would fall into that category. We have individual family counseling, we have family counseling, and we have group counseling, and often it's all three of those. Um, some kids aren't good. Uh, a good candidate for group counseling on, on both ends, um, either because of socialization skills or because they're more of a withdrawn person or a more quiet person, so their voice can get lost um, or never heard, quite frankly, in some of these uh, uh, group settings just because of, of social anxiety issues or things like that. And so then that really needs to be more individual or individual with their family um, just because they're probably not going to address what needs to be addressed in a group setting so um, everyone's different but certainly um, it can be very healthy for kids to be supportive uh, with each other because you've all experienced the same thing as long as you're a good candidate for that type of a setting. So people who are highly depressed, suicidal, maybe they've even tried it unsuccessfully, can they uh, make a complete turnaround from that sort of a mindset? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, sir. 
certainly, um, like the one client I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, um, who's done great, and he wants to be a therapist. Now, this is a, uh, um, if you look at suicide in a continuum, at times, you know, people can, can think, well, it's a part of the whole uh, continuum that, that depression and, and these types of things, that's not necessarily a truth all the time, but that's one of the most treatable things that we have. You know, if there, there can be a chemical imbalance. We certainly have many uh, medications for that. There's a lot of behavior modification stuff that people can do, a lot of positive affirmation stuff that people can put into their lives. Um, and, and sometimes it's just a matter of changing uh, some of the structure of the social environment that they're involved in, or there's other issues that they're um, actually using this as their avenue to escape um, that we need to address outside of that individual. Um, so there's, it, it can be pretty complicated. Each case um, is very, very much individualized. You know, it, it's um, how healthy is the family structure. Uh, you know, it, it's you really look at all the things from a trauma standpoint. Some people are doing it because they um, are, are repressing the fact or they haven't openly talked about or dealt with being a victim of abuse, whether it is physical abuse or sexual abuse. Um, others are going to be a lot of violence in the home because of substance abuse, uh, whether it's alcohol or drugs. So um, each individual, it's different. But we do know that when it comes down to it, people think that that's a viable option. Um, but when you particularly look at children, their frontal lobe is the last part of the brain that's going to actually be developed, and that's your um, decision-making. Uh, so they're not going to be as cognitively advanced as an adult, so they're not really going to see all the options. Um, when you have teenagers who break up, those are typically some of the most intense emotional connections that they chose. So they may be can love your family, but you're born into that. You chose to be with this person, and now if that person rejected you and you're gone, that is the most emotional connection you've ever had with another individual by choice, and that's going to be painful. So depending on what kind of uh, social network they have around them or support system, they could really be at risk. So you can't minimize those things by saying, oh, there's other fish in the sea. That is just like the worst thing to say at those times. What you have to do, though, is reach out to get help and making people know that that help is available to them. And that's the beginning. Walking in the door uh, uh, to start any process to address um, these types of things is really half the battle. Um, it, it's tough to do that. I, when it comes to mental health issues, we all have um, these views about it, and society has a view. Um, my view is people who seek um, counseling and, and uh, uh, to address issues, they're the ones who are courageous. These are people who show such courage that they're willing to put themselves at risk to walk through that door to get better because it's the last door they want to walk through. And it's kind of like uh, relationships that are strained and having uh, an impasse on something and maybe nobody's talking about it when finally somebody does start talking about it and both of them start talking to each other about it. It becomes much easier to continue talking. Yeah, and there can be great relief in that. It's not necessarily it's fixed. It's Dwayne Kassara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. Uh, if anybody uh, wants information about your agency, Dwayne, what do they do? They can check us out on the web, dfyf.org, or call our intake department, 614-294-2661. All right. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks, Dave. Take care.
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.